Morning, Hickory Bible Church. Good to see everybody today. You could turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we will uh, continue on into the woods and the winds of the Holy Spirit gifting the church with spiritual gifts, those gifts that are from above. They're not natural gifts that we just happen to have born into this world in the flesh, but these are spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit for others' good and for God's glory. And so we started a couple weeks back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we did a couple weeks at the beginning just from the outset looking at the presence of uh, all three members of the Trinity as it relates to spiritual giftedness. Most certainly, you could see that in verses 4, 5, and 6, varieties of gifts, one spirit given them, varieties of service as in ministries we do, but all to the glory of the same Lord and variety of powers or effects as in the, the, the power that we have comes from God and the work that is accomplished is by him as well. And so that helps us to not be so individually obsessed, which that is common to all men. It's common in our culture to be all about me. And yet when we talk about spiritual gifts in the church, it's all about we. It's not about who I am and what I have as much as the emphasis in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, This is about the common good. Verse 7 made very clear And then it's the Spirit who's working in all these things, verse 11, distributing how He wants. And so it is a work of the Father and Son and Spirit, even our definition that we came up with uh, as we've gone through it. Spiritual gifts, if you're looking for that definition still or want to be reminded of it, uh, it is in a form of Father, Son, and Spirit. Spiritual gifts are God-given powers for gospel ministry bestowed by the Holy Spirit at salvation to every Christian for others' good and God's glory. That's what it's about. So there's no class system. There's no hierarchy in the church when we talk about spiritual gifts because it's from him and to him and through him. They're gifts that are bestowed by the Holy Spirit. Everybody has them at salvation. We're not waiting for a second blessing. When you are saved, you are given the Holy Spirit, and so you have spiritual gifts. It does take a matter of time, I guess, in, in reality of how those are worked out, how we see them present in our lives, but we have them, and we're given them as gifts. And when you get a gift, you show the most honor to the person who gave you the gift by actually doing something with it. Not getting that gift and being like, ah, in the closet it goes, but no, really, thanks. And that thing's getting re-gifted to somebody else the next year. There's no re-gifting in the body of Christ. You don't use it, that's on you. But it's meant to be used. It's meant to to be enjoyed, and and it's meant to impact other people. Hence, it's given by the Spirit, and it's revealed those Spirit's work in our life when we're using it in and around ourselves in the church, but also out in the public sphere as in the impact the body of Christ by all of us getting a hold of what our gifts are and how we can use them should be showing up in our community. And sure, that happens case by case, as in you have your gifts and you're using them here in the church, and then you also are ministering to a neighbor or a coworker. But collectively, our church, Hickory Bible Church, should be useful for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Hickory and to the ends of the earth by all of us working together rather than being apart. Famous Christian dead guy, one of my favorite Puritans, Matthew Henry, wrote that spiritual gifts are bestowed 
that men may with them profit the church and promote Christianity. I love that. That's what it's all about. It's that the church would profit, not the individual. You're part of the church, but it's just not about you, but also for the promotion of Christianity around the world. They're not given for show, as in that I should attract attention to myself, but for service, not for pomp and ostentation, but for edification. Not to magnify those that have them, but to edify or build up or strengthen others. So we've asked the question from the start, am I more interested in my spiritual gifts being used to profit or promote my agenda and my views or to profit the church and promote Christ? And sometimes, you know, I say, hey, friends, it can be a both hand. You know, in Christianity, it can be this and that. But not when it comes to this. It is an either or. That in, in your heart, before the Lord, as we've gone through this series and as we're going to continue to go, can you really say that this isn't going to be about you? Sure, you want to figure it out. You want to define it. We need to describe it. We need to explain it. We need to expound it. We need to exhort it. We want to apply it. That does have to do with me. But before the Lord, I could say, but it's going to be for the common good. It's going to be for the edification of the church, the building up and strengthening of this body and the promotion of Christ. Or what good is it? So last week, we turned the corner from looking at the forest of spiritual giftedness in the whole chapter to, we said, let's get into the trees and let's start identifying each of these gifts. And we uh, listed them last week from verses eight through 11. And we only got through the first two, wisdom and knowledge. And we saw there was some overlap between the two, as in um, all of us have some of it, none of us have all of it. But because we're to make disciples and disciple making is about fundamentally teaching others to observe that all that Jesus commanded, uh, he wouldn't command something that we, he wouldn't equip us to do. So we all got something when it comes to the ability to teach other people and a, a teacher in the New Testament, a gift to the church is comprised of some combination of knowledge as in what do I understand about God and his work and his ways and wisdom, the practical application of it. And I tried to illustrate, and maybe I failed it because a few people had to come back and ask this week, um, you know, when I tried to say that, look, you may have some common grace, natural giftings that uh, whether or not, or before you were a Christian, you were good at explaining things, or you're good at applying or figuring out, and you, you know, some of you are like, so does that transfer over though? You know, uh, do I, does, when I became a Christian, can God take some of my natural abilities and use them for his glory in the church? And the answer is maybe. Sometimes that gifted communicator becomes born again and they end up as a teacher or a preacher and sometimes they don't. And then when you, you meet maybe a person who's a preacher or a teacher or whatever in the church and you get their testimony and you're expecting them to say, you know, I was part of Toastmasters Hickory. I was really top of the class. And the fact that none of you even get that means I should move on from it. <laughs> but there's not always correlation because God doesn't have to use your natural giftedness. He gives you the spirit. He may take it, multiply it out. He may not. The point of the matter is we just start serving where there's a need and we figure out as we serve, we kind of hone in on it. What are my gifts? Well, it's going to be hard to find them contemplating your own 
spiritual existence out, you know, on some retreat by yourself, you know, with you, your phone, and your spiritual gifts test online. It's far more going to be appropriated and apportioned and seen just getting dirty, putting your hands in the dirt in what? Ministry in the church. That's how you're going to figure it out. And you'll see what God has planted and that he's going to make grow. So that was all last week. Let's jump back in this week. I'll read all of 7 to 11 to break down. And then we'll just look at three more gifts in verse 9 and the beginning of 10. Faith, healing, and miracles. And similar to last week, even though there's distinction between wisdom and knowledge, and there is distinction between faith, healing, and miracles, we will be able to see, sure, there's probably some overlap there. Because we're not to isolate these to the point where they, we say they have nothing to do with it because it's compilation. It's, it's an artist's palette. It's, it's the Bob Ross where he could take some primary colors and put them on his thing and then he's mixing a few of them together and painting with them. Thank you for those who know Bob Ross. There's hope. But that's, you get, you get some basic gifts illustrated, proclaimed here, but it's not to say it's like, oh, I'm just all red. And you just have this red painting. No, he's mixing some things together and a little bit of this and some, some happy trees. And, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll stop. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 11. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things in God's word today and by the Holy Spirit's teaching us, may he illuminate and instruct us. All right, we're in the forest. We're finding trees. The first we're coming to today, the third on the list, verse nine, faith. Right there in verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. Um, as you look at verses 8 and 9, I wouldn't say there's any way that we could figure out why he uses through the Spirit, according to the same Spirit, by the same Spirit, and by one Spirit, what that means, other than Paul is trying to, by way of repetition, which good teachers do, uh, try to really drill home this idea that as diverse as the gifts in the church are, same Spirit. One spirit through the spirit, as in continually saying or implying by telling us that it's not about you and it shouldn't be explained away by something you think you bring to the table. That's the problem with this church. Going back to the beginning of this letter, why he had to write them and address all the matters in the church because there were party spirits, divisive people who were making things about them and who were the hierarchy, the cream of the crop, the best of the best based on their gifts. And he's saying, how could you possibly do that knowing that it's one spirit who's giving it all out? And he doesn't play favorites. God is not partial. So that's probably why, if you've noticed, hey, I see he's saying of the Spirit or through the Spirit or according to saying what's with that, nothing, other than to emphasize the point, this is given by God, the Spirit, so get your eyes off you. 
Faith. Faith is a common word in the Christian language. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, when we look at all of these gifts that are mentioned, faith is going to be the word that pops up the most, and it's all over the place. Faith, this word, it doesn't give us much just looking at it in verse 9 in and of itself. So we have to step back and pull away and say, what faith is he talking about here? Well, when I did my work this week, faith, that word you see in your Bible in verse 9 is used 243 times in the New Testament in 24 of the 27 letters in the New Testament. It's very common. And so we're not able to zero in on what exactly it means, just the word itself. It means belief. It means trust. It means assurance, conviction, certainty. Those would all be synonyms for faith. But we were trying to figure out what it would mean in this context. Well, we can group faith, the word itself, if we were to do a little Bible study this week and you took all 243 occurrences of the word faith and said, okay, let's first categorize them all, systematize them into two big buckets. Saving faith and we'll call it working faith or living faith or active faith. You got got that? So here's this pipeline of faith you know, running across and then it comes down and it's either used as saving faith as in justifying faith. The faith that you believe and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's saving faith, justifying faith. And then, having been born again, having been saved by grace through faith, then now we're talking about living faith, working faith, active faith, and there's a lot of different ways that's used, but the two big uses of the word faith in the New Testament would be saving faith and living faith. He's not talking about saving faith here. He already covered that back in verse three. He's saying, look, you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's how you come into Christ. That's how you even have the Holy Spirit in you. So he's not reiterating here when he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. This is a working faith, an active faith. I do want to mention, when we're talking about saving faith here, though, that um, for some who might be in our midst today and new to this church and new to the faith, uh, I, I want to explain saving faith just for a moment so that we're not rushing past something and you're confused by today. Saving faith is what brings you into a relationship with God, and the root of your faith, to produce the fruit of faith, is the person of Jesus Christ. The key to understanding saving faith when it's used in the New Testament are verses like Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God, which is what sinners lack, which is why sinners, apart from faith in Christ, will spend eternity in hell. Because God is righteous, God is holy, and he demands righteousness, and he demands holiness. And if you lack that righteousness, the only way you get the righteousness of God is, what does it say? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So even when we talk about what is faith, we got to change what to who. Because the object of our faith is not a what, it's a who. It's a person. And the person is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's saving faith. And if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, any other discussion about faith today is a moot point. Do you believe Do you trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul? Ephesians 1.15, so having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, when Paul's writing a letter to a church, he's saying, what's your faith in? It's in the Lord Jesus. Or Philippians 3.9, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, because the law can never never save us, because we can't keep it perfectly. 
but that which is through faith in Christ. Christ kept the law on my behalf. He was perfect on my behalf. That way he's the righteousness of God on my behalf. And that comes from God on the basis of faith. So first, Jesus is the object of our faith. However, the New Testament in that saving faith category also uses a definite article at times in front of the word faith to say there is a body of information, facts, content, truth around Jesus that actually defines who he is and who he's not. So we, we can't make up a Jesus of our own imagination. There are verses that attest to this. When we're talking about faith in Jesus, there's a body of truth about him. Acts 6-7, as the word of God was spreading, the number of disciples were increasing greatly in Jerusalem. This is after Pentecost. A great many of the priests, Jewish priests, were now becoming obedient to the faith. He's not talking about Judaism anymore, is he? Faith in the law, that you could keep it perfectly yourself. He's saying the faith, the content, the truth around the person and work and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.10, Paul could even write to a church and say, hey, those Christians, they're people who are of the household of the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 actually makes a helpful connection between the reality of Jesus is the object of our faith. Do you have Christ in you? And you have to see if you're in the faith, as in everything that surrounds who Jesus is, what he said and what he did. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, the Christian faith. Or do you not recognize this, that Jesus Christ is in you? There's the connection there between the body of truth around Christ and is Christ Jesus in you? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not just what you say you believe. Is Jesus Christ in you? And are you in him? That's what it means to be a Christian. So I ask you this morning, for those of you that might be new here, before we move on to talk about faith, do you have saving faith? Do you understand that the righteousness of God, that he demands, your creator, can only be received by faith? It can't be received by your own efforts, no matter how hard you try. That's good news, actually, because Jesus Christ supplies that righteousness because he was perfect. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He not only did that, but he had to take the sinner's place, the punishment, the wrath of God for sin, and he did that when he went to the cross. And to prove that he perfectly satisfied God's justice and God's judgment, he actually rose from the grave three days later. Death couldn't hold him. Part of the curse of sin was to die. And because Christ could not stay dead, it means he satisfied the perfect righteousness of God. He was raised for our justification. Proof, evidence that he was the perfect sacrifice accepted for sinners. All of those truths of the faith still have to go back to, do you believe in him? I'm, actually, I'm asking you, okay, those things I just said about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, could you believe those are true? Yes. But do you believe him? Do you put your faith in him? Not just words on a page in the Bible, but the risen Christ who is right now seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, upholding all things in the universe, including your very breath. He upholds it all by the word of his power. He's a living savior. Do you trust in him? And if you do, he gives eternal life. 
He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, God the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's saving faith. Okay, we looked at that bucket, putting it to the side. Now let's take out living, active, working faith, which is what Paul's referring to here. Another faith by the same Spirit. This is, if Jesus Christ is the root of our faith, then what Paul is talking about here is the fruit of our faith, and it is supplied in varying measures. Paul says in verse 11, hey, the same Spirit's giving out these gifts, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So there are those, though we all come into faith equal, because we all come through Christ. When it comes to the faith that is trusting in the person and promises of God on a daily basis, continually, moment by moment, that's gift. And some have that trust to a greater degree. And that doesn't make people greater or less Christians. We're just talking about living, active, working out faith. And you know people like this. It just seems that their faith in God to work and to, to, to be active and to be powerful in a certain situation that seems hopeless, they're not wavering. We like people like that around here. We need people like that around here. It stirs up everyone else's faith when somebody is just so convinced God can do it and they say, let's charge that hill. That's what this is talking about. Now that's my, I guess, you know, down-to-earth definition. Um, but I found some good ones from some uh, guys who spent a lot of decades of their life working in the text of 1 Corinthians. Um, they, they wrote commentaries, and commentaries aren't the Bible. They're not infallible, but they are for guys who have the gift of knowledge, guys who go off and study the Bible and, and spend decades of their life pouring into just one book. And I'm going to quote two of them today because they come up with um, better definitions than me. Uh, first guy, Anthony Thistleton, this is what he says. From all his work, decades of work, expert in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, he has a 1,500-page commentary on 1 Corinthians. He spent some time in the text. This is how he defines faith. A settled disposition of robust confidence in God that raises the spirit and morale of fellow Christians. That's a good definition for faith. That settled disposition of robust confidence. People probably pop into your mind right now when you read that, don't they? Like, when I'm around so-and-so, that's what I like about them. There's just this confidence in God. And, and what's the effect on you? It raises my spirit and my morale to trust in the promises of God. Another definition I liked uh, by a guy named Gordon Fee, who, you know, slouch in his own right, wrote a thousand pages on 1 Corinthians, defines faith this way, a supernatural conviction that God will reveal divine power or mercy in a special way in a specific instance. And that's also a helpful definition. Maybe the first one kind of is more in that uh, experiential, that disposition of robust confidence and its effect on others. But what is that robust confidence that God will reveal his power? He'll work in a specific way, in a specific instance that we can't always particularly define, but it's, it's that trust in God. So you can take those two definitions and do with them what you will. But they're both, both say in the same thing a person who's been gifted with great trust in the person of God, in his promises, and in who he is and what he does. 
Um, some of us, you know, you can read a verse in the Bible and it's just like, hey, if God says it, I believe it. No questions asked. And, and in the situation I'm in, I'm getting on my knees praying and believing to that end. Sometimes there's not a specific verse for every circumstance in our lives. So instead of it just always being, I would say, centered on you find this verse that particularly applies, you would say, I know who God is. I know what he's like. I know that he's loving. I know that he's good. I know that he's powerful. I know that he's merciful. I know that he's holy. You, you reason back from his character, his person, again, to the reality of the situation you're in. You don't necessarily have that verse that comes to mind, but you just trust him because you know him. And both of those are legit. Because God didn't give us like an encyclopedia of every situation in life and a verse for it. But we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness so that there isn't a circumstance or situation in life that even if we don't have a particular promise to zero in on, we trust his person. And that's, that's what it comes down to. It's a both and. And some people in the church have this apportioned faith in, in greater degrees than others. I'll give you an example of it. Let's go to numbers. What? Numbers? Chapter 13, common story of um, that first generation being told to go and there's going to be a place for them and that place for them, get this, is called the promised land. So you'd think their faith would really hold on to the fact like, there's a land that God promised we're going to make it. Numbers 13. And I just came across this reading this this week and it jumped out to me like, hey, this is a good example of what this faith looks like in action. Numbers 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. There's the promise. There's the land. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. Quick note, uh, a leader among them means, you know, you know that just because Joshua and Caleb get all the press, the other 10 guys weren't slouches. He was saying, hey, find the leaders, one in each group, send the best of the best to go spy out this land. And so we won't read through that list of names. Verse 17, Moses sends them out to spy out the land of Canaan, goes into the country, see what it's like, come back with a report. And so they went up, verse 21, spied the land. They came back 40 days later. They cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. Man, this is my sanctified imagination. How big are these grapes? A single cluster, but they need a pole and two guys to carry it. I've seen some of your grape vineyards around here, the muscadines. Like, my twins could carry that. But this is like two of these guys. I mean, this must have been some, some impressive grapes. So they bring them back. And they return, verse 25, and they come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation, and they brought back a word to them. Show them the fruit. There's the proof. This is what they said, verse 27. We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey and with it fruit. They're seeing it. They're believing it. The land that God promised as a good land. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and large. And there's these really intimidating people called Amalekites and Ittites and Jebusites and Amorites and all the ites. 
faith is starting to shrink of these ten leaders. Except for Caleb, who quiets the people before Moses and says, we should by all means go up and take possession of it. And here's faith in action. For we will surely overcome it. That's what this faith is like. It's just the person that goes, wait, are we forgetting what we were just told 40 days ago? God is going to give us the land. Now, that's the promise. He doesn't give him specifics. He doesn't say this is the amount of guys that are going to go into battle. This is how many will die. This is the where you should arrange. No, he just says, I'm going to give you the land. Do you believe me? And 10 didn't. And two did. The other ones who had gone up said, we're not able to go up against the people. How about this line, verse 31? I mean, do you find your heart saying this sometimes in certain situations? They are too strong for us. Right? That's unbelief. God can't work in this situation. Even with a promise? No. They're too strong for us. So they gave a bad report. And what did that lead to? Not the common good, but the common doubt, grumbling. I mean, look what it says now in verse 14. The people rebelled. They wept all night. All it took was 10 negative Nellies with no faith, doubting God, to cause the entire congregation who were probably like, man, if those grapes are there, I'm going because we've been eating manna for 40 years. Banana bread, you know, banana loaf, banana, banana pancakes, whatever. All we got is this manna, and now these grapes are awesome. But, you know, we're not going to make it. We've calculated it up and we just can't win this battle. Look at what they said in verse three. Why would the Lord bring us into this land to fall by the sword? I mean, they, what a discredit to God himself. Impugning God, saying he's gonna bring us not for deliverance, but for destruction. Talk about unbelief, weak faith. And so what's their answer? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to the other place. Let's go back to the false gods, the corrupt leadership. We'll take our chances there rather than take our chances with God. So Moses and Aaron are on their faces praying in the presence of the congregation and from all we can tell in the text, they got nothing. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh and those who had spied out the land tore their clothes and spoke to the congregation and they speak up, the men of faith. The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, so that's not just a gift of faith there. There's a gift of wisdom and knowledge there. They know what's going on. They know how God works. Hey, if he's pleased with us and he promised us, he'll bring us into this land. Here's what we can't do, verse 9. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't disobey God. And don't fear the people of their land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. Now, all these things they're saying in faith, right? I mean, there was nothing that God said is, I'm going to remove their protection from them. They were able to reason out from faith, believe in faith, that God said, I'm giving you the land, that Joshua and Caleb could then say, they'll be our prey. They don't have protection. Why? The Lord is with us, not with them. Are you guys crazy? So don't fear them. Isn't that faith speaking? I'm not just back then. I'm talking about today. Is the Lord with you? 
promise did Christ make to his disciples? Matthew 28, 20. I will be with you always, always. Every one of you, in all history, to the end of the age, when faith becomes sight and you don't need it anymore. How are we any different than this moment here back in Numbers? It's a spirit of faith. How do I know that? Flip over, or not even flip over, but just look ahead to Numbers 14, 22. God says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test and not listened to my voice. They don't believe my promise. But, verse 24, my servant Caleb, because he has a what? A different spirit. And what's that spirit of faith? He follows me fully. That's what it is. I mean, when you get around somebody that has this gift of faith, if you had to come up with a working description, maybe not a definition, but you're around them and you just say, you know what? They may not always have the best ideas. They may always make sense with what they're believing on. But I'll tell you this, they are following God fully. And it's hard to argue against that. They're different that way. And again, Paul is using this in the context of, hey, friends, this is something apportioned out by God. So we're not playing favorites here. We're not moving these people to the front of the pack. We're not building some hierarchy and building the whole church around the people that have the most faith. He's just saying, hey, this is just one of the many gifts God gives to his church, but it's good to have these people in our midst. The belief of Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ. I mean, that's where that faith is coming from. Just a simple faith like that that says, look, every need... Not everyone, not every passing, waning desire, interest, every need of mine will be supplied by my rich Father in heaven. And all of his account is accessed by one login, Jesus Christ. I get into his account only, exclusively, through Jesus Christ. And that's what faith apportions. That's what faith lay hold of. That if I am in Christ, I'm in the family, I have access to all the riches God the Father has for me in him. And so we pray his promises back to him. You're like, where does this touch down, Adam, in our lives? I think, I mean, it is one thing to go around and strengthen and build up other people. But if it ain't starting in prayer, I don't know how you really live it out. Because on your knees in prayer is where you take those promises of God and you argue them back to him, as the Puritans would say. You just take God at his word and you, your own soul is the one saying, uh, didn't you say this? Is, I, I'm quoting you. And I think I'm quoting you rightly. These are your promises and I believe them. Charles Spurgeon wrote, what is prayer but the promise pleaded? A promise is, so to speak, the raw material of prayer. Prayer irrigates the fields of life with the waters which are stored up in the reservoirs of promise. The promise is the power of prayer. We go to God and we say to him, do as thou hast said, O Lord, here is thy word. We beseech thee to fulfill it. That's a prayer of faith. You see it and you just say it back to him. That's how you fight. 
the fight of faith. Not exclusively in prayer, but certainly prayer's at the top of the list. Ephesians 6.16 says we take up the shield of faith and through that we extinguish flaming arrows of the evil one. So it's not just in prayer. We fight sin and Satan through our faith. We fight the sins of doubt and despair that would cause us to not trust in God and be effective by, for serving him. And yet we fight against that with faith. We stand firm in our faith. Colossians 1.24, continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What grounds our faith? What's our steadfast hope? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if I really believe that God gave his son to die for me, what more is he not willing to give? If he gave me the most precious gift he could give, why would I believe that he would ever leave me hanging after that? How much more should we believe in all things? Are we working out our faith so it's evident? Colossians 1.4, Paul writes to the church there, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1.8, the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So yeah, our faith shows up in the privacy of our prayer life on our knees in a prayer closet where no one else can see, but it also sounds forth from our lives, doesn't it? Other people hear about it, see it, they feel it, they're around it. In Romans 12, he reminds us we're not to say, oh, you know, God has his faves. We're to think is to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So we're not there comparing because you know what? The size of the faith, at least according to Jesus, isn't really the thing. It's just that you have it. Mark 13, 22, Jesus answered them saying, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that he, what he says is gonna happen, it'll be granted for him. He's just trying to draw as much as he can a disparity between the smallest thing, the faith of a mustard seed, the biggest thing these guys could see, a mountain, and saying if, 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 if you just have this much, you can do that much. But you gotta have something. Something's gotta be real about this much. So, so don't compare mustard seeds. You've got one. What are you doing with it? What faith do you have? And, and if you feel weak in faith, do you, do you pray that God would increase your faith? I believe, help my unbelief. So that's faith. And that's the biggest one. And really there, like I said at the beginning, there's some overlap between talking about faith and talking about healing and miracles. Let's move on. Second, heal the world. Verse nine, part B, to another gifts of healings by the one spirit. You know, the word means what it says. So there's no debate as what does healing mean. We don't want to die the death of a thousand qualifications saying, well, healing isn't really healing. No, it's, it's healing. It's the power or capacity to heal. Now, he does use it in verse um, 28, gifts of healings, plural, and then he uses it in 30, all do not have the gifts of healings, do they? And even in this verse, the translation isn't absolutely accurate because it should be gifts of healings. And, and some commentators, some of these guys I've been mentioning before, are trying to highlight the fact that there is no evidence from the New Testament text that there is a gifted healer, as in there was a certain person who was the healer. God apportions out, as he would please, gifts of healings, all kinds, in all places, in all ways, in all circumstances, but there is no credibility to the idea in 
Corinth and beyond that you had Barnabas the healer. So we shouldn't be looking around and saying, okay, in our midst, who's the gifted healer? Because the New Testament doesn't suggest we should be looking for that. John Piper writes, when 1 Corinthians 12 says that the Holy Spirit gives to one faith, to another gifts of healing, to another working miracles, don't assume that the Spirit's giving of those gifts is locked into specific people. It doesn't say that. Which means you don't know through whom you might receive healing when a person prays for you. Anybody may be given a gift of healing. You know, you see backup support on that in James 5 because it does say is any among you sick then he must call for the elders of the church and they're to pray over him but then it says in verse 16 therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed I think that's the point that Piper is making here that Paul is making don't try to limit it to just say I got to find who's the gift who's the healer of HBC I mean, I'd like to know. My back's sore. I tried to pick up one of my twins the other day. Genuinely. And I know you've all heard the argument before. If you know somebody who really has the gift of healing, send them down to the hospital. Right? I mean, that sincerely. I mean, go to a... You should be out to every sick person out there, especially... You know, terminal illnesses and stuff that has no hope. But you don't see those guys on TV showing up in the cancer ward, do you? If you think it's relegated to a person. But here's the hope. You don't know through whom you might receive healing when someone prays for you. So that doesn't actually shrink it down. What does it do? It expands it out. I mean, as elders, we get asked to pray for people, and we do it. We do it in faith. Because we know God can heal. And there's no, um, you know, ringer on the elder team. Make sure Chris is there. If it's just Adam, it ain't going to happen. He'll explain to you what healing means for an hour. And there's times as elders we've gathered around. We just did this past week with a brother who asked the elders to pray for him and anoint him with oil. And we did it with joy. For his good and the good of the church, there'd be nothing more than we would want for this guy to be healed. And God may grant it and he may not. But we won't stop praying and we won't stop praising him, whatever the outcome. So that's the gift of healing. And I think in, in today, what we have to really be cautious of is there are those who are claiming to be a true apostle, performing signs and wonders and miracles. I don't know. I mean, one way to detect whether a person really has any credibility to call themselves a faith healer is are they, is that ministry they say they have further promoting the pure message of the gospel or diluting it because the typical faith healer with a message of health and wealth the prosperity gospel is doing what it's distorting the gospel it's it's trying to conflate our spiritual healing which is promised in the gospel 
Even back to Psalm 103, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases. Well, they take that and say, no, look what the gospel does. It heals, you know, it forgives your sins and it heals all your diseases. It's a really poor handling of the text. But see, it works for them because then they can merge those two things together, promising you prosperity and health, um, and also throwing in, you know, Jesus Christ died for your sins. So you hear that in guys like Joel Osteen. I have a quote from him. It may look like the difficulty is going to defeat you, but you need to keep telling yourself, this sickness can't take my life. This cancer can't defeat me. No bad break, no disappointment, no accident can shorten one second of my divine destiny. You know, a broken clock can be right twice a day, and there is a divine destiny that nothing is going to overtake. That's called God's sovereignty. But for you to, to believe you have the power in your own words to speak healing in yourself, conflates the healing that God has given you in Christ for your sin with that I should be able to speak words of healing over a cell in my body. Or Joyce Meyer, also famous false teacher, I have faith for I'm a believer. And, and notice how close it wants to get to the truth to hook you. I believe I receive my healing and my faith makes me whole. That power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in me. Again, that's a true statement. The power of Christ is in working us. My faith puts that power into active operation in my body. Disease has no choice. See what they did? They conflated the two. If healing does not occur, here's the real terrible part of this. The problem is a person's lack of faith. Some of you know this, sadly. I've seen it. Been around those who had some sickness, believers, they love the Lord. Either they want to be whole and they don't, they're not healed and what's... You know, some of these people saying, you know, that's your own lack of faith. That's, they they want, don't want to just say it as outright as awful as that, but you hear it. You know, you sure you have enough faith? And um, that's the furthest thing from helpful, right? It's hurtful, actually, because not only am I sick, but apparently I don't really trust God. Or last but not least, I was going to say the worst of the bunch, but they're all the worst. Benny Hinn. Um, this is always attached to money. It's pretty blatant. Upon God's word, let me assure you today, God's will is for you to walk in divine healing and health. You're so precious that he died on the cross for your sin. That's true. And your infirmities. It's not true. The cross accomplished our atonement. It, it, the cross said nothing about cells in my body being healed. I have to wait for my new body in heaven and earth for that. Yeah. But I, I wait for it in faith. And I pray that I would be healed. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, again, praying for healing is great. Promising it and tying that promise into the gospel is heretical. And then it's tied into, look at the bottom, not only will I look forward to hearing from you. Why? Because he needs a new jet. Not only will your seed go toward the preaching of the gospel to the nations all around the globe, but you'll be planting toward a harvest in your own life. It's awful. So how do, how do we know what to do with... Um, people that claim to be faith healers and potentially false teachers. Uh, I stole this from John Piper. He had five questions to ask. First question to ask is um, when we encounter quote-unquote faith healers, because you've got to do this work. I can equip you up here, but you all got to do the work. I mean, you're going to encounter it. You're going to find the YouTube video. or the exp So here's the questions you can ask, and I stole this from him. First, what do they believe about the gospel? If they got that wrong, right, 
What else is going to be right? If they twist and distort the gospel, why should you trust them for everything else? So do they have the gospel right? I mean, what makes Osteen and Meyer and Hinn true false teachers is not primarily their teaching on spiritual gifts. It's primarily their teaching on the gospel. That gets you under the scope or in the crosshairs of false teacher that I could say unabashed. But not everybody that has disagreement with me on spiritual gifting is a false teacher. If they have the gospel right, there could be differences there, my interpretation of the text. But if you got the gospel wrong, I got no time for you. And nor should you. Second, their purpose. What's their ultimate goal in healing? Is it to serve their purposes, to confirm their authenticity so you give them more and sow more seed? Or is it truly for the gospel to be authenticated? Because that's what it was for the apostles and for, even for Jesus. What were his signs and wonders, miracles and healings always attached to? To authenticate the message that he was the son of God. Third, do they believe healing is always God's will? A hallmark of many faith healers is the false teaching that real faith always heals. Therefore, if you're not healed, it's because you lack faith. Like I said, that's 100% more hurtful than it is helpful. Fourth is, do they rank healing over treasuring Christ? As in, is the highest praise in their life going to be going towards healing, or is it that Christ is with me in the suffering? And last, did it, have you asked your own elders for prayer? I mean, if you're considering the, the authenticity of a faith healer because you do want to be healed, you do want to be whole, have you just followed the simple command in James 5 to go to your elders and ask for prayer? And as I mentioned before, we love doing that. We have no hesitation to do that. So that's healings. And then last, uh, miracles, verse 10. To another, the effecting of miracles uh, that, that affecting of miracles literally means workings of power. And we see it in action in Acts every time you hear signs and wonders spoken of. Uh, and, and just to clarify, as I was saying in the overlap, sometimes you have this overlap where it's hard to separate out. Well, Adam, is affecting of miracles, workings of power, is that, um, is that also healing? And how does that connect to faith? And that's where I say, yeah, you can have some overlap in these terms, even though Paul is listing they are distinct giftings of the Spirit. They work together. And in the New Testament, we see there are miracles, both in the time of Christ and in the time of the apostles, and things were done where there's no natural explanation. I guess a, a definition, if you want one for miracles, would be from D.A. Carson. He says, uh, all healings are demonstrations of miraculous powers, but not all miraculous powers are healings. They may include, not limited to, exorcisms, nature miracles, and other displays of divine energy. So think about miracles to just make sure we understand what we're talking about here, especially in our daily uh, use of Christianese. A miracle is when God suspends natural laws for the supernatural. However, sometimes we might be in some situation or circumstance that we're looking back on and we say, oh my, it was a miracle. You know, I... I, I I got this promotion, so then I went to this town for this job, and then I met this person, and we did this and that, and, and now look how it's all come together. What a miracle. Were any natural laws suspended there? Because what you might mean is the word providence, which is just as fantastic as a miracle. 
Because providence is when God pulls together not these supernatural, out of the natural world things to make something happen. Providence is when God works within all the contingencies of our natural world to accomplish some end that you do stand back and go, what, how did that happen? That's providence. And he's been running the universe with it since the beginning of time. So providence should be in our hearts as exciting, if not more, than looking always for the miraculous. George Mueller, evangelist and um, founder and runner of orphanages in England in the 1800s, a contemporary of, of Charles Spurgeon, had often miracles occur and sometimes we can say, like, that's both miraculous, but it's also providence. Uh, you know the story. Is the one famous one in particular. He's got to feed these 300 orphans breakfast, and there's nothing to feed them. The cupboards are bare. He gets on his knees and prays. And lo and behold, who breaks down in front of the orphanage? Some guy with enough eggs, just enough for everybody, but not to be outdone. Another guy carrying milk breaks down in front just after him, and he has milk for everybody. Now, milk didn't fall from the sky, Eggs didn't appear out of nowhere, so miracle, providence. I like both. There are times we can say, look, I mean, that was so impossible. Can I call it a miracle? Sure, but do know that nothing supernatural suspending the natural laws of the world happened. God just arranged and ordered in the only way that he can this act of providence in your life that you go, well, how? He's God. He can do it. It's both and. What would be the miracles for today? Well, we know that demonic activity still exists, right? There's still demon-possessed people, so casting out demons still happens today. But there, there's no one, again, in the New Testament outside of Jesus Christ and from time to time with the apostles to authenticate the gospel, no gifted exorcist, sorry, Hollywood, you know, somebody with this deliverance ministry. It's the same language in using uh, what, what was said about the gifts of healings that at any time, at any place, any believer gifted with enough faith in a moment encountering the demonic realm. Look, I'm not going around on some demon hunter expedition looking for it. But I have full confidence that if in my path someday doing the job I do, demon-possessed person comes by, I know what Jesus said, I know what the apostles said, and in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of that person. I also know, give me a little bit of pause in Mark 9, that, that when the disciples uh, were trying to cast out a demon from a boy and Jesus wasn't with them and maybe they were feeling good in themselves but not dependent in what? Prayer and fasting, because he says, this kind only comes out by that. What's he teaching them? Your dependence wasn't where it should be. So, take heed, I guess would be my only word there. But I'm not, I, I'm not walking around, you know, on spiritual eggshells going, man, I hope I never pa cross paths with somebody demon-possessed. I'm not overconfident. I just, hey, if Christ has authority over all things, then again, I don't need to go looking for it. In fact, when you look, and, and we talked about this in Mark, uh, demons weren't going around with signs trying to get cast out. They were hiding. And of all places where? In synagogues, in false teaching places. Why? Because their goal is to do what their father does, the father of lies, to deceive. 
And I told you back this, this back in Mark, and I say it again today. We shouldn't expect in a place that holds high the word of God, exalts Christ, wants to make disciples of him, that there should be a bunch of demon-possessed people in our midst. They wouldn't hide out here. There would be no place for them. There would be no good for them. And again, I don't say that boldly, bodaciously, brashly. I just say that when you look at the New Testament and see how it worked, if they're into false teaching and keeping people in the dark, um, it's not going to work here amongst you. Why? Because you love the truth. And you walk in the light as he is in the light. And you don't call darkness light and light darkness. Because the darkness hates the light. Because it doesn't want its evil deeds to be exposed. So, when you're thinking about people that claim to have some miracle-making ministry or healing ministry, remember the warnings of Christ and Paul about false teachers and false Christ will, be, will arise to be on the alert. And if I had to say it in a sentence, how do we evaluate it? I would evaluate these type of people this way. The truth of someone's words who claim to be able to do the miraculous, do the healings, are determined not by the feats they can perform because we're called to discern them. And we're called not always to believe what we see. The truth of a person's words are determined not by the feats they can perform, but by the content of what they teach and the holiness by which they live. You want to evaluate somebody that claims to have these gifts? Start with their teaching, work to their life. Are they characterized by fidelity to the word of God? Is their life characterized by faithfulness to living that word out? Because things can be counterfeited. But when you have discernment, when you have knowledge, when you have wisdom, you can detect there's something not right about that teaching. And if you get around that person close up or you see even the fruits of their life saying there's something not right about their living. So I'm not going to let my eyes deceive me. All right. Wrapping it all up. Because I know in something like this, in a jam-packed message talking about these type of issues, um, there could be some misquoting or misunderstanding. So I just, I wanted to say, hey, before we get out of here, let me just recap this real quick. What did you hear me say today? One, all three of these gifts can still occur today. Why? Because God is still the God of faith. He's still the God of healing. And he's still the God of miracles. So if the Spirit wills, to do as he wishes and to give these gifts in circumstances and situations as he wills, they can still occur. We can all agree on that. However, point number two, no one is a gifted healer or miracle worker. These gifts are given as the Spirit appoints them and apportions them. And Jesus Christ was the only person who could do these things 100% of the time. Some of the time, the apostles were given the gifts of signs and wonders in the apostolic era to authenticate their message. But we don't have that same apostolic ministry as Paul, the signs of a true apostle, signs and wonders. So that's number two. Number three, we should all pray for God to heal. Hear that loud and clear. We should all pray for God to heal. Can you find a prohibition in the Bible that says us, tells us not to pray for God to heal? And at the same time, we can't find any promise that he will do it every time. What we trust in is his goodness and his wisdom. We trust in who he is. Number four, when it comes to miracles, we should all be just as eager to praise God for his providence working all the time 
than only looking for miracles happening some of the time. Right? I mean, the person that only wants to get jazzed up and excited for miracles, 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 introduce this vocabulary, providence, providence, providence. It's working all the time, every moment of your life. But are you stepping back to look for it and see it and be amazed by how God could take all the contingencies of everything that could happen and has you in your position, in your place right now to see the opportunities you have in front of you and make the most of them for Christ. Number five, in the aftermath of these messages, will you carefully go back to the scriptures and take a deeper dive if you're wrestling with it? Find another sermon. Ask another question. One thing I know we can't leave here doing today is we can't stop loving each other if we have differences. Because Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. So you may have somebody, I wouldn't be surprised, that may have some disagreements with you. You may have to go back to the text. You may have to give a second listen. You may have to email Curtis. Last on the list, you can reach out to me. <laughs> but if we lack love in any of that, if, if, if love is not our first instinct, believing the best about one another, rather than assuming the worst. It's all for nothing. So isn't it good that the Spirit inspired Paul in writing this awesome chapter about spiritual gifts, that the Spirit knew something about where this could lead, so he gives us chapter 13 about love right after. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because we do want to be a church that is not just excited and eager for the gifts of the Spirit, but equally as earnest for the fruits of the Spirit, that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control would permeate this body of Christ that we be known by our love and the way in which we use our gifts for the common good and your glory would be evident but we be known by love because all the gifts in the world won't matter if we lack love it'll discredit this whole thing and we want people to know you father we want them to know that you sent your son in love for sinners so that we could be saved. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, help us now to centralize our thinking and our hearts to see the great love of God in Christ and remember it in the Lord's table. Amen.